Welcome to another episode of the Darren Batchelder Multifamily Real Estate Investing Show. Our guest today is a powerhouse in the world of real estate and entrepreneurship, Rich Summers. With a portfolio worth over $50 million, Rich is a seasoned investor and a podcast host himself, running the Rich Summers Report. Based in San Diego, he also hosts two monthly real estate networking events. A graduate in economics from California State University, Rich is passionate about building wealth through commercial real estate. So let's dive in and learn from his wealth of experience. But before we get started, if you're looking to invest in multifamily real estate and you could use some help, visit darrenbatchelder.com forward slash investor call and schedule a call today. This episode is sponsored by Cashflow Portal real estate syndication software that accelerates capital raising. I'm both an LP and a GP in many multifamily deals. I've used many different software applications for the capital raising process, and I like Cashflow Portal the most. I'm so confident in the software and the Cashflow Portal team that I've become an investor in the company. If you are a syndicator looking for a software platform then let the Cashflow Portal team know that you heard about them on Darren's podcast and you will automatically receive three months off an annual contract. You can find the company at cashflowportal.com. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing. Be introduced to the players that are getting it done and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Rich Summers. Rich, appreciate you coming on the show. Darren, I appreciate you having me on, man. I'm a big fan of uh, your show, and I don't know if you know this, but... uh, on, on listennotes.com, your show is ranked in the top 1% in the entire nation uh, based on popularity and downloads. And this is out of about 3.2 million podcasts nationally, and you're in the top 1%. So uh, congrats to that. Well, man. I, I appreciate that. So it's funny because Rich and I, it's been a long time since we've, we connected, but you know, Rich started a podcast with, with a couple of other business partners uh, called The Real Estate Takeoff way back when, probably, I don't know what, three, three years ago or so. And 2019. And, and fun fact, I believe you were like, you were like episode number two or three. Yeah. So I was like one of the, <laughs> one of the newbie, you know, guests on that show. And, um, it's just been great watching you, you know, develop, um, ever since. So, you know, with that, that's how, you know, for the listener's perspective, that's how we know each other is that, um, you know, we did a podcast together a while back and then, um, you know, I'll let Rich share a story a l- little bit later, but, um, you know, I've seen him develop and get into different asset classes and build a personal brand. And like, it's just been a lot of fun. So I'm really interested in this conversation. Um, first question I typically ask Rich is how many properties and how many units you're invested in? Yeah. Uh, 10 properties, about 340 units, uh, multifamily short-term rentals and uh, boutique hotels. Right now we're buying boutique hotels. Before we get into the the actual assets, you, you've kind of gone off and built your own brand. I, I was just looking at your Instagram 
and you've got 113,000 followers on Instagram. So maybe talk a little bit about, you know, why did you go off on, you know, and, and form your own podcast, which you've got the Rich Somers Report um, as a podcast and, you know, really built a, a really strong social media presence. Yeah. Um, well, as you alluded to, so when I first got into real estate investing in the podcasting world, I had a couple partners um, and we were all working uh, as air traffic controllers together at the time. When we got into real estate investing, we all cashed out our 401ks uh, and that was kind of our seed money to, to get started. Um, and fast forward a few years in, um, you know, I just I just no longer felt aligned. And, uh, you know, with, with any partnership, you're not always going to be aligned. And I just kind of felt like I was never going to reach my full potential with with that current structure. Love those guys. It was a very successful partnership. It was a very tough decision. Uh, we still own real estate together, but ultimately decided uh, almost a year ago to uh, split off and, and go on my own. Um, and with that, um, I decided to start my own podcast. I took everything I liked and didn't like about the old one. Um, got a office down here in downtown San Diego. We got a podcast studio that we built out. I wanted to have an in-person type of podcast and uh, decided to go all in on building out the personal brand. Um, and it's been great, you know, uh, about a year into doing it, putting out a lot of, you know, social media content and, uh, a lot of podcast episodes. It's been great. And just the importance of it. I think there's so many backend wrinkles, uh, that come out of building the personal brand that, you know, I didn't even realize going in such as, um, you know, having a lot of cool opportunities, people that want to partner with you, being able to attract really good team members. Um, but most importantly, I would say a lot of the, the capital that we're raising right now for our fund um, and a lot of our back-end products are all coming through podcasts, social media, and that personal brand. Fantastic. So, you know, there's a lot of things you can do with a podcast and with social media. What have you found to be the, I guess, the most, um, uh, the highest use of your, your time and money in terms of ROI? Um, and building up yeah. that personal brand. I would say absolutely the podcast episodes. So I think with social media, you know, you're doing a 30, 45 second TikTok or real short. Um, it's hard to gain someone's trust in 45 seconds. But I think the purpose of these shorts really is to drive people to listen to your podcast. And once you get them on your podcast, now they're listening to hours and hours of you. So by the time you hop on a call with them, um, they already feel comfortable. They're ready to invest their money. They're ready to purchase uh, whatever backend service or products it is that you're offering. Um, so I think that's really the secret recipe. And then also, if you do the long form, it's like, well, you can chop up these shorts out of a one hour episode. You can chop up five or six shorts. Uh, and now you don't have to do your short form content. So you're kind of hitting different metrics if you would. But um, I would say out of all the different platforms, so you got TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, uh, and then you got podcasts. I would say podcasts is going to be your most sophisticated uh, listener uh, or audience. It's going to be uh, an audience that is going to have the highest net worth uh, versus like TikTok. A lot of those uh, folks are a little bit younger demographic, a little bit lower net worth. Those aren't going to convert over to, you know, high ticket sales or, you know, raising private capital. But people that listen to podcasts and also Instagram is going to be number two. Instagram is a huge lever. I think Instagram has all different uh, demographics. And I think for me, that's definitely the, the, the biggest platform for sure. That's awesome. Um, I, I agree. Like, so tell me if you've had this happen because I, I have like somebody reaches out, Hey, can we get together for coffee? Yeah. And all of a sudden they ask me a question and I start telling them, like, yeah, yeah. I already heard that story. Like, you know, like they, they've heard a lot yes. of podcasts. You don't know what they've, they've listened to and they haven't. And they, they know a lot of your background. 
um, from the podcast, you know, like you said, there's a, there's a lot of hours that they could potentially have, have listened to you on. Yeah, no, you, you absolutely nailed it. Um, it's by the time you jump on with someone, it's like, they, they feel like they know everything about you, which is the true power of it. I don't need to spend hours and hours going back and forth with someone, uh, to determine if they want to, you know, invest into our fund, jump on a call five, 10 minutes and boom, they're ready to rock and roll, which is, which is really nice. That's awesome. So there's a lot of people trying, you know, we are going to get into the, the real estate stuff, but there's a lot of people trying to build up followers on Instagram or other platforms, you know, uh, 113,000 is pretty impressive, my friend. So how, how did you grow it? What was the biggest lever in growing followers? Yeah, so I think the key if you're starting from zero is really just to commit to posting literally every day. If you post a, co- a piece of content every day for 90 days, now you have 90 days worth of content to go back to and you can look at it and say, okay, what did good, what didn't do good? Do less of the stuff that didn't do good, but the stuff that did very well, double down on it. And I think that's the key. Uh, the other thing is study the folks that you look up to in the space that are putting out content in whatever space it is that you're in and maybe pick like four or five people that are above you um, and then look at their content, study that and see what they're doing. Um, it's not, it's, you don't have to reinvent the wheel, but there's certain topics that people like um, and then you can take those topics and then remix it into your own spin, put your own take on it and then put it out. You know, it's a topic that people are already going to like. It's likely going to do good. Um, and then the algorithm's changing. It's always changing every, every couple months. And so unless you're posting every day, you're not really going to know uh, what direction the algorithm is going. So I think right now, uh, like Twitter posts do really well. So, um, and it's cool because it takes five minutes to come up with a Twitter post. You can screenshot it. You can also repurpose it on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. And so now you're, you know, getting four or five X the leverage with one Twitter post that takes five minutes. Um, and then lastly, I would say, you know, content out there, everyone's, everyone's doing it. And I would say, put out content on subjects that you are familiar with and you have experience in. You can tell when someone doesn't have experience in the topic that they're talking about. So I would say hone in on the stuff that you're good at and then niche down a little bit. I would say with my old podcast, it was all apartment investing. So it was like every conversation was apartment investing. After 100 episodes, I was like, man, I'm getting bored. I'm like, if I'm getting bored, the listener's got to be getting bored, right. you know? And so with my new podcast, it's not just apartments, but it's all asset classes. Um, we talk about business. I bring entrepreneurs on. I bring on athletes. I'll talk about anyone basically that has a story that is inspiring. Um, and it keeps it engaging for the listener. And it's also a way to reach a bigger audience. So I would say that's, that's another lever right there. That's awesome. Um, you know, a few things on that. I would, I would say you don't seem like a guy who, who has much fear, but I, I, I know when I got, I'm an old school guy and like I'm, I'm 53. I got involved when in real estate 48. Um, but I heard the same thing when I went to somebody and I hired somebody to like, what do I have to do for this Instagram thing? Right. And he said, you got to post every day. And I was like, what the heck am I going to post? And, and then I, Realize, you know, and then you have fear, like, what are people going to think? Right. And then, but it's, it's not about the people that you're, you know, are judging you. It's about the people that you're helping. Like, you know, know, somebody all of a sudden looks at it and is like, oh, you know what? I want to, I'm interested in that topic. And so then there's somebody else that maybe look at it and be like, oh, what is he, you know, who does he think he is? You kind of forget that, you know, after a while. Mm -hmm. So you, you get past that fear by doing it. 
Absolutely. And, and I'll say this, when I first started putting out content, I actually lost followers for like a month because, you know, people that follow me from high school, college, and, you know, my old workforce, those folks, they don't want to see all the real estate investing content. They don't want to see the business entrepreneurship content. And so they actually started dropping off. And, you know, that could be very discouraging for a lot of folks, but slowly and surely you start to attract people that are, you know, into your content for what you're putting out and they can reside with you. And so it starts to grow over time. But like you said, I mean, you know, it, it is uncomfortable at first. Uh, it, you know, can make you feel embarrassed if you would. Um, however, the only way to get over that fear is it's to just, just post it, every day. Right? And eventually you, you become numb to right. it, right? It just becomes and a also, habit, also, right? Yes, 100%. And I'll also say this, like, if that's the price I got to pay to impact others and show them what's possible, right. I'll take that trade off any day. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So let's talk boutique hotels because I have not had one person on the, on the show that has focused on boutique hotels. So one, why boutique hotels and how'd you get into it? Yeah, absolutely. So with multifamily cap rates being so low and the interest rate environment being relatively high, um, I found that uh, a lot of deals weren't penciling. And so rather than keeping the force down that pipeline, I was like, well, what else could we do? And throughout uh, my real estate investing journey, I kind of backed into some short-term rentals along the way and started building out uh, a short-term rental portfolio. And these assets were performing very well, even through COVID. And I built out a management company in the short-term rental space to where we manage our own properties, but we also manage for third-party owners. And so with that, we were already in multiple markets. We had all the systems and processes built out. We had the hospitality brand on the short-term rental side. And so if you take multifamily and you take short-term rentals and marry the two, it's really a boutique hotel. And short-term rentals, you know, over the past couple of years has been a big boom um, because 21, there was a huge demand for, you know, basically uh, domestic travel. No one was traveling internationally. And so the Airbnb revenue in a lot of these markets went nuts. Interest yeah, rates were at all time low. I had people tell me like, Darren, man, you're missing out. Like we're, we, the cash <laughs> on cash is incredible. Yeah. And it was, it was. Um, the problem was, was we had all time low interest rates. So it was relatively cheap debt. And then you had this big demand for domestic travel, which increased ADR and occupancy. Um, and so everyone jumped into it. everyone chased his Airbnbs. And so now with the slowdown in the economy and in the interest rate environment being where it is, uh, a lot of these deals uh, are and a lot of these markets are oversaturated. Uh, look at Scottsdale, Arizona, for example, is 6,000 short term rentals in a market like Scottsdale. And so it doesn't mean you can't be good, but you got to bring a unique product to the marketplace in order to be good. You can't just go buy a four bedroom house anymore, throw some Ikea furniture in there and do good. And so as I saw this happening and I saw the cap rates very low with multifamily, I thought, okay, well, what can we do right now? And I thought, well, what if we go buy a boutique hotel and what if we use our management company to operate this property remotely with a self-check-in, self-check-out model? This allows us to bring the manager's unit online for additional revenue. And it also allows us to eliminate the expense of having an on-site manager. A lot of these boutique hotels have an innkeeper's suite. Often that unit is the nicest unit on the property. Mm. It's often one, two bedroom with kitchen, living room, et cetera. And so now we can eliminate the payroll expense of having the onsite manager. We bring that unit online for additional revenue. And so that's one way to kind of force our appreciation. And um, if you look at, you know, 
all the Airbnb investors over the last couple of years, I think the next natural progression for all of them is to get into boutique hotels. I was recently at the Bigger Pockets uh, conference last year here in San Diego, and every other person I met, Darren, was like, I'm doing Airbnbs right now. I cannot wait to get into my first boutique hotel. So I believe it's going to be the next big thing, especially as regulations in the short-term rental space tighten in a lot of different markets around the country. So that's really interesting. You take the, you take the experience. So I've stayed in some Airbnbs and I've, st- I've stayed in, you know, um, vacation rentals that maybe is a friend of a friend or something like that and uh, or something from VRBO and um and a lot of times you just show up, right? You don't you don't meet the owner, right? You get a code and you go in, and so that's basically what you're doing. Instead of having somebody check you in, you're you're like you're apartment number nine, and you have a code or something to to get you into the unit. Yeah, it's all remote. So we got um, we got a team of VAs in the Philippines. They do a lot of our guest communication. They do a lot of the um, back-end stuff. And so for a lot of these guests in the post-COVID world, like they don't, they don't need to go shake someone's hand to get a key. They, they actually prefer just to go in and out of the room. They get a, a, a key code uh, and they just come and go uh, as they would. And so we look for properties that are between 10 and 40 units, something that we can self-manage. We don't like the properties that have a lobby and a bunch of different access doors to get to their room. We like more of the garden style stuff to where each of the units have a, a door that is accessible from the exterior of the property. What about um, geography, states? Yeah, so this is actually interesting, and this might be a little bit different to a lot of the, the multifamily folks um, that listen to your podcast. So in terms of strategy, I think one of the differences with the boutique hotels right now, at least for us, is we're targeting a lot of the more liberal areas because we're, we want to go into areas that are not oversaturated with a bunch of Airbnbs. And so we're going to areas that have tight short-term rental regulations or pending short-term rental regulations that are coming down the pipeline. And those areas typically are more the liberal type of areas, areas that have a lot more bureaucracy and red tape, such as California. Um, And so, you know, Scottsdale, Arizona, great short-term rental market. We have a luxury short-term rental out there that that does very well, but I don't want to ever own a boutique hotel in Scottsdale. There's 6,000 Airbnbs in Scottsdale alone. And so as a hotel in Scottsdale, I don't want to compete with all that. Um, and so we're targeting coastal areas. We love well-located areas near the, the coast, near the water. Um, and there's a lot of baby boomers right now that are retiring. And between now and the next seven years, a lot of these boomers are going to be retired. And those are a lot of the folks that own these boutique hotels in that kind of two to $10 million space, which is what we're targeting. That's very cool. It makes sense, you know, to, to not have the competition of all those Airbnbs. Um, and you know, I, I am. I don't own any short-term rentals. I I don't know much about it, but I have read in different periodicals that you know some of the urban areas. There's question. There's not as much competition potentially, but there's question marks in terms of whether you know the regulations will you know kind of squash that whole market. So, do you look at vacation areas or you know business travel areas as well? Um, primarily vacation areas, if we can find an area that's great for tourism, but also great for business travel, that's a win. So like the most recent hotel we bought was 24 unit boutique hotel here in downtown San Diego in a neighborhood called Lida Italy. 
And, you know, this area is great because we got year round tourism. It's not seasonal from a weather perspective, but it's like ranked number two in the country in terms of business travel. There's a lot of business conferences here in San Diego uh, for obvious reasons. But the other metric, which is massive right now, is because a lot of these uh, boutique hotel sellers right now are mom and pop type of boomers. A lot of them are not up to date with modern technology. And so a lot of them are not using uh, a lot of these OTA platforms. They're not using social media. They're not using Airbnb or Verbo. And so it gives us an opportunity to come in and implement modern day technology and do heavy, heavy marketing on social media. We'll put all these units on Airbnb and Verbo as well as booking.com, hotels.com and all the other OTAs out there. And so simply by doing that, we can really, really push a big lever to the revenue. Uh, to add some context for your listeners, the one of the most recent ones we bought was up in Northern California, Beachfront. It was a 2002 built property, 10 unit boutique hotel up in Northern California, an area called Shelter Cove. The seller had owned the property for 18 years and he never exceeded $180,000 in gross revenue. He only had a direct booking website, was not doing any sort of marketing. And we picked up the property. We did a nice renovation. We just relaunched it back in March. And our revenue this year is we're going to hit 700,000. So we oh, take it from 180 are you kidding to 700,000. So yeah. what is the, so we, the exit strategy? That's, I mean, that's a huge change in, in NOI. I mean, um, yeah. what, so, so what do you, what do you do then just refi it and hold it or do you sell it? Yeah. Or what? So that's, that's really our, our, our strategy right now is, is to add a lot of value, refinance at the higher valuation and then hold it long term. Uh, we're targeting 10 year hold with all these hotels that we're buying right now. Um, because you know, when we find these deals, one, it's hard to find them, but two, we basically rebuild the entire property these properties are tired. That's what we're, we're, we're seeking. And so we'll do four renovations. We'll design them to a T we'll hire a brander. We have a design team and completely transform these properties. And then we manage them in house. And so by the time we do all this work, I'm like, I don't want to just sell this property right. and give it to someone else. Like I want to hold this thing long term, you know? And so that particular deal, we bought it for 1.5 million. The seller financed 70% of it. And a year later, it just appraised a few weeks ago for 4.5 million. So we tripled the value of that property in a year, in a year where we have a high interest rate environment. And then uh, it's gonna give us an opportunity to pull out all of our capital and then we hold this long-term. Um, and so right now we're in the, the process of refinancing that property. That's huge. So what when you refi, and how much of the money do you submit back to investors and how much do you keep into the property? And do, do lenders yeah. look at that type of revenue differently than they would say a multifamily with traditional 12 month leases? Like it's, it's yeah. not as guaranteed. Yeah. So I would say lending right now is definitely, and, and I'm, you're seeing this in the multifamily side as well, but it's, it's definitely dried up relative to where it was 18 months ago, especially for the more creative financing. From a DSCR perspective, uh, lending for boutique hotels, they still have about that 1.3 uh, DSCR requirement. Uh, so that's very similar. However, LTV is going to be a little bit lower. Uh, most lenders on the boutique hotel side are not going to go above 65%. You do have some caveats to that rule and some exceptions, such as if you go SBA, which is like a small business loan, um, they'll do some boutique hotels. But if you're raising capital from investors, you don't really want to go the SBA route. Um, there's just a lot of paperwork that needs to be done. They're going to want to see bank statements from your investors. We're not going to do that. Um, so really... You're looking at about 65% LTV, regardless 
what your DSCR is. Your DSCR could be 2.0. They're probably still going to cap you about 65%. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, congratulations to you and your investors. I mean, that's it. One, it's a cool niche. Um, two, you know what? You, I love how you said that it, you kind of, it was like in between short, you know, you had the short-term rental experience, you had the multifamily experience and the boutique hotel was kind of in between. And, um, you know, in the multifamily space, you know, in terms of saving expenses, you may see that somebody is running a property with just too much payroll or they haven't changed out the, the water and you're going to put in low flow toilets and you're going to have that water savings. But there's probably not that many people out there that have that business plan that I'm going to buy a 10 unit, 20 unit boutique hotel and I'm going to one, get an extra unit and then two, not have any staff. So get rid of payroll. I mean, that's both those two things are a huge impact. Yeah, absolutely. And with that 10 unit boutique hotel, we didn't just get one, we got two units out of it because the management, it was a husband and wife. They've been living on the property for six years and they convinced the owner to let them combine two of the units so they could have a bigger place to live. And so we were able to bring those two units back online. And then in addition to that, you know, they never exceeded, this owner never exceeded $20,000 in revenue in any month. He owned the property over 18 years uh, since we relaunched in March, our revenue has been going up every single month. Last month, we just hit 80,000. So we just took it from 20K to 80,000. And it's like, think about that lever. Like you can't do that on the multifamily side. No, that's, that's huge. So what's the risk in, in, the, in these types of deals? Yeah, the biggest risk I think is the lending environment. So right now, below $10 million for a stabilized boutique hotel, um, there's not a ton of lending options. So I think that is the, the biggest risk to this model right now. I think obviously when the rate environment stabilizes, it's going to be easier to get debt. But I would say that is the biggest challenge to this asset class right now that you don't see in the multifamily side. It's just not a ton of lenders want to touch this product, especially for the unflagged hotels. Uh, flagged hotels, you know, that are, are franchised out, it's a lot easier to get debt on those hotels. You can get better leverage, but for independent, it's much more challenging. Yeah. So how do you, I know you have a big social media presence, but how do you drive traffic to a small little boutique hotel, 10, 10 unit, 20 unit? My wife and I were talking about how, you know, the, the big boys call it the Marriott's and the Hilton's or whatever. Um, they seem to keep buying up these brands and you go to their website and, you know, you put in and maybe the one you wanted to stay at is full, but then you've got 30 other hotels like in the area, you know, with other brands that they own that pop up. Mm-hmm. Well, that's visibility. Like how do you end up doing that when you're a, a one-off? Yeah. So one way is the OTAs, but the OTAs charge anywhere from three to 15% per booking. Um, and so what we do, we're, we're in 10 markets around the country in terms of short-term rentals and boutique hotels that we either own or manage for third-party clients. And so we have uh, a Wi-Fi program in all those properties to where any of the guests that stay at any of our properties in those 10 markets, they have to put their email address in to get access to the Wi-Fi. So we populate all these email addresses of all the guests that have already stayed at one of our properties, and then we put them on a drip campaign. We send them weekly emails, encouraging them to come back and direct book at another one of our properties. This saves the guests on the fees. It also saves us from the fees, but it also uh, allows us to be more and more independent from Airbnb, Verbo, and these third-party booking platforms. 
platforms and it gives us a little bit more control uh, long-term. So that's one way. That's very Obviously, smart. Obviously social media way. is another way. Very smart yeah. to, to, you know, everybody gets wherever they're at and they want to sign up, at least like my kids, that's the first thing they do whenever we get someplace. It's like, all right, what's the Wi-Fi? How do I get on? And if they have to put in their email address, it's not a big deal, right? But now mm-hmm. you have, yeah. you know, a, a market to continue to market to your, your second and third and fourth properties. That's huge. Yeah, no, absolutely. Another way is, you know, social media um, and then uh, Google ads is, is big as well. Um, and then word of mouth, you know, obviously just, just driving those five-star reviews is what we're good at. And, and that goes a long way. I love that. I love that. Um, you know, short-term rentals, do you do much on that? On like, say, email campaigns with, short, with your short-term rentals? Um, we do. So those drip campaigns that we do for the hotels, we do for all the short-term rental stuff as well. Um, and all those guests, whether they're checking into a boutique hotel or one of our, our short-term rentals, we will collect and populate all those email addresses as well. So one of the things that I was, I was talking to somebody that is in my, you know, I have a, um, part, I'm part of a men's Bible study on Friday mornings and he's not in, he's not an invest, like a full-time investor, but he has, you know, one or two short-term rentals. And I think that probably there's a lot of people out there that kind of got into the space. Um, but he has a email list for, for his other business. And I'm like, why don't you take that email list and let people know that you own these units? They would rather pay somebody that they know. Or they may know that their aunt or uncle is about to go on vacation there. So, you know, if you've mm-hmm. got an email list of thousands of people, like, why not send it out, even though it's not for your particular, you know, business? And it could also prompt them to say, you know, well, I'm not interested in that, but like, it's been a while since we talked and all of a sudden now you're talking to the guy, you know, about your traditional yeah. business. Absolutely. Absolutely. But as you know, you know, it's always a fine line, right? It's like when you put out these Too emails, much. right? it's like, well, you always want to be providing value. Right. And, uh, you know, I, for me, I'm like, I, I never want to sell. Um, so it's like, Hey, provide value 90% of the time. And then you have that 10% ask. I think that's totally cool. Um, but we're always trying to like kind of navigate that line. Cause we, we host a lot of meetups out here in San Diego. So we're always populating these email lists, like, Hey, let's, you know, promote our stuff, but let's do it in a manner to where we're not selling. That's huge. Uh, so talk about the meetup. I've seen, I've seen pictures on social media. You guys do some fun stuff and have meetups and f- some fun places. Um, you know, how do you put it together? How do you promote it? Have you seen growth? And what's the difference between shaking somebody's hand and, you know, just putting out a social media post or talking to them on the phone? Yeah, absolutely. So we have two meetups uh, here in San Diego. Uh, One of them is called Beers and Deals. It's on a rooftop here in downtown San Diego. Um, probably the best view in downtown San Diego. We got Bay views, sunset views. Um, but that meetup we've been doing for four and a half years. It's actually the biggest real estate investing meetup in all of San Diego. Wow. We do it monthly. Um, and I think the, the, the most important or the biggest lever of going to a meetup is, is networking. 
And so for us, we don't have any speakers. We don't have any pitching. We don't have any selling. It's not formal. It's super low key. Everyone comes, hangs out, has some drinks, good views and socializes for the entire time. And the feedback is people love it because we don't, we're not selling anything. There's no speakers and it's just very chill. Um, so we do that monthly. It's on the second Wednesday of every month. And then the other meetup, which we uh, do during the summer season, we usually start in May and then we'll go to about September is we do a yacht meetup. And that one, uh, we go on the water is about 50 people. And uh, we got two sushi chefs on board. We got a saxophone player. We got a DJ. We got a bar. And uh, it's just an opportunity for some folks to go out there and, and just talk some real estate investing, get on the water, something a little bit more unique. Um, but to answer your question, man, I think the power of the meetup really is to, you know, get out there, shake some hands and, you know, you never know who you're going to meet. Like there's been folks who uh, have met at our meetups that have partnered on deals together. Uh, I've met investors there. I've met partners there. Like it's just cool to see other folks come in. And it's really like, you know, a bunch of different folks, whether they're new real estate investors inspiring to get into the space or they're folks that, you know, have syndicated thousands of deals. Uh, they're there. And so it's cool to just kind of see different people come together and, and network with uh, like-minded individuals. Yeah, that's, that's cool. And I think there's some people that, I don't know. They're nervous to make a phone call or reach out, but they all of a sudden go to, go to a meetup and they ask the person next to them and then they meet, you know, somebody else. And then all of a sudden they ask some questions and they, it gets them more comfortable with, you know, putting their hard earned money to work someplace. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the network is everything. You know, I, I started going to these networking events before I even owned any real estate. Um, and it's, it's all who you surround yourself with. You know, I think unfortunately a lot of folks when they're getting into real estate investing, they go to their friends and their family for advice. And unfortunately the friends and family probably have never owned any real estate and they talk them out of it. They tell them it's too risky. Right. I know when I first got into this space, I, I cashed out my 401k and I remember everyone told me, you know, not to do it. Friends, family members, coworkers, they told me it was too risky and they're quick to outline all the risks. Um, I was lucky that I was going to networking events and I started hanging out with people that were in the space and, you know, you talk to someone, they might tell you it's risky, but then you could talk to someone else and they're like, Hey, like you're not thinking big enough, you know? So it's two completely different perspectives, but it all comes down to who you're surrounding yourself with. That's, that's exactly right. So now you have a fund. Just talk about, you know, what that fund makeup is. Why did you create a fund versus, you know, just buying assets? Um, you know, how do, how do people in, get involved in that? And, if somebody, do you have multiple assets in the, in the fund? You know, all of that. Yeah. So I did some single asset syndications on the multifamily side. And then the first hotel was a single asset raise. Um, and with this last deal that we bought, I said, you know what, let's launch the fund. Um, and I, I love it. It's, it's amazing. So from like a reporting perspective, it's one set of reporting. Um, it, Get, allows the investors to be diversified across multiple assets. And so, you know, if one deal maybe is underperforming, the other deals will lift it up. Um, and so it takes a lot of risk off the table from the investor standpoint. Um, and then from like a distribution reporting standpoint, it's so much easier, the workload. Um, and it's, it's a lot easier in terms of like, we don't have to go uh, raise money and gear up and do all these different offerings and pitch decks for each deal. It's just one set of everything, one set of investors, one set of reporting, one set of distributions. It's so much easier. I don't, I don't know if that'll ever go back. A lot of people have, have gone down that path and have said that. Um, you know, when you're doing the, the single asset syndication, it's like a, you know, a frantic race to 
get the money in, right? Like you get the deal under contract and then you've got a couple of weeks to put together the pitch deck and do all that. And then you want to raise the money in the next two, three, four weeks. And, um, you know, with a fund, you could be raising all the way through. So you always yes. have something to offer where, you know, there's some syndicators that they may have invest a new investor is like, I'm ready. And they're like, well, you know, I, you know, we just closed a deal and I might have another deal in two, two or three months. Um, but with a fund, you always have a place for somebody to invest. Yeah. And I, I think you nailed it right there, Darren. I think you always want to have some sort of product to offer your, your customer base or, or someone that reaches out, right? So if you're doing content, putting out podcasts, you're always going to have a drip of potential clients, potential investors, and you always want to have something to offer them. And so with us, we recently acquired uh, hotelinvesting.com. And so we're in the process of building out this site. But what our goal is, is to provide a ton of free value and content on hotelinvesting.com. We'll probably do a free ebook and a bunch of how-to stuff. But with that, the content, the podcast, will drive a bunch of traffic over to the website. And then from there, we'll populate you know, their email addresses, contact information, and then we'll put them into a funnel. So right now we got the fund. So if they want to be more passive, we'll put them into the fund funnel. And then if they want to be more of an active investor, we also have a boutique hotel mastermind where we help folks that maybe have bought short-term rentals and they have Airbnb experience and they're looking to buy their first boutique hotel. We'll put them into that funnel if they want to be more active. And so now we have a product for, for both customers. That's awesome. I love that. I love that. That's, that's a great way to do it. How do you, um, how do you handle the valuation? So an investor comes in and you just opened the fund and they invest with you and you buy your first asset. Then you've got another investor that comes in after you bought the first asset. And obviously the, the one that put money in initially, you know, had more risk and, and you know, did, there was no assets at that time. But the, the other one comes in, they already have some cash flowing assets in the fund. How do you manage that? Yeah. So uh, with this fund, we're going to close it out at the end of these, this year. So there's not going to be too much of a timeline discrepancy from the early investors to the later investors. Um, however, the only difference really is going to be the uh, preferred return that we're giving or we're, we're distributing. And so if someone got in, let's say in May of this year versus December of this year, they're going to miss out on, you know, two and a half quarters of, of you know, preferred returns. Um, however, when it comes time to refinance these deals or sell them on the back end, they're all going to participate with the, the same, you know, equity percentage. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I've heard some people talk about, you know, giving some kind of bonus to, you know, um, people that got in earlier, um, you're doing it by the, the preferred lasting, you know, a longer time period. And then I've heard the the really sophisticated ones that actually have like net asset value. So somebody comes in later, they're purchasing at a different price point into the fund. Um, all those things are, are interesting. I don't know anybody that's done the fund and has gone back to doing mm. individual syndications. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, in terms of the bonus, like the only thing that we're doing in ours is we have a 7% preferred and then we're doing an 8% bonus kicker that comes out of the GP for anyone that invests more than 250. Um, but you're right. I think people that get in early, they're taking a little bit more risk because they don't know all the assets they're going to be in the fund versus the person that comes at the very end. They know all the assets. Um, I totally get that. It, it, it makes a lot of sense. I will also say this. 
I think with our fund, it's a 10 year timeline. And so right now with the high interest rate environment, um, you know, people can get four and a half, five percent risk free in a CD. Right. You know, and so right now we're raising for a, a 10 year fund where we're paying a 7% preferred, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to, it's a little bit more challenging to raise capital today than it was a year and a half ago. But where we're raising a lot of money right now is, is through IRAs and 401ks. I think that's a huge lever that a lot of syndicators don't, don't fully maximize. Right. Um, but so many folks out there have old IRAs and 401ks sitting around from old employers collecting dust. Often they don't even know who the custodian is. They haven't looked at the account balance in three or four years. They have no idea what it's invested right. in. That's a perfect candidate to invest in your fund. You know? And so I would say we've been raising probably close to half of our capital wow. from IRAs. That's a, that's a huge percentage. Um, so what about lockouts? You know, like if I, if I, you look at like the, the big boy funds, you know, Black Rocks of the world, um, you know, they've had redemption requests. You know, people get into a long-term fund and then all of a sudden they want to get out. Um, how do you handle that? I always tell the investors, I'm like, hey, this is a 10-year timeline, so expect for your capital to be tied up. However, um, you know, if, if you get into any sort of a situation, personal situation, you come to me like, hey, I need to get this money out at some point. I will do everything I can to, you know, make them whole, uh, whether we buy them out or we bring in like another investor. Um, but from a paperwork standpoint, there's no, you know, getting your money out during the duration or during the whole period, if you would. So, the, so there is not the ability to, to pull the money out. And so that's, no. you know, and you look in a syndication, most syndications are pitched as a five-year business plan and, you know, the discussion could be, hey, we could turn this thing around in three years, but it could also be seven years, you know. And so your money is illiquid and you can't get it out um, during that time frame. So you're taking that same approach and push it, putting it into a fund approach. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's not liquid. And I always tell the investors going in, I'm like, look, um, you know, expect for us to sell these assets sometime by year 10. However, if we can meet that 10 year projection early, like let's say you're seven or eight, for example, we'll look to exit early, but I just want you to know going in that your money is potentially gonna be tied up for 10 years. All right, so here's another example. You, somebody, you, you sell an asset. Now is it the funds management uh, decision as to whether to go and buy a new asset? Say you, say you sell in year three or four, um, some of those people may want their, you know, their distribution on, on that deal. And some may be just, Hey, Rich, buy another asset. I know, I know this money isn't coming out for 10 years. What's your take on that? Yeah. It's, it's funny because a lot of investors in this fund, they're like, even when we sent out the first distribution, um, they're like, Hey, can we just not take our distributions and we just roll it in back into the fund? Um, so right now we're not doing that. However, um, when we look to refi some of these deals, some cash out refis or sell one of the assets, if those investors want to roll those proceeds into another opportunity, it won't be with that particular fund just because we plan to close out each fund at the end of each year. But hopefully, or in an ideal world, we'll have another fund uh, and another opportunity ready to rock and roll for that investor. So if we, we, we do a cash out or we sell one of the assets, they can roll those proceeds, not into the same fund, but into another fund that we have available. That's kind of the, the hopes. That's an interesting question that, 
they brought up in terms of the distributions because, you know, especially when you have, when you're talking about having 50% coming from IRAs, right? So they can't really, mm-hmm. you know, a lot, I think that's a huge opportunity is to try to figure out a solution for people on distributions and also say on a sale that they don't, they don't want the money back because they want it to be working. Um, you know, finding another return mechanism for them. I'll give you an example. For me, I had a, I have a self um, solo 401k and I had a real estate deal, you know, fun um, sell and I got a big gain and went back into the solo 401k. I didn't want to turn it around and put it into another deal right away. So I called right. the bank and said, Hey, can I put this into, you know, until I decide what to do with it, can I put it into a 5% you know, money-making account. Well, the bank said, you know, on the retirement funds, we don't have a product for that. And that, I think, is a big missed opportunity because I'm like, look, if you don't have something, I'm going to end up moving this money someplace else and you're going to lose that. And they were like, I get it, but we don't have anything. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's, it's definitely, uh, you would think a lot of these self-directed IRA custodians would have something lined up for a lot of these folks that are invested into private real estate offerings, because I think for the majority of the capital that they're deploying, I think the majority of it, especially right now, is, is going into real estate offerings, whether it's a fund or, or a single asset syndication. Right. Oh, okay. That's huge. Well, I, Rich, I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, haven't had anybody talk about boutique hotels before and I think it's a fascinating space and uh, once the you know we are in a tough lending environment for all commercial real estate asset classes and uh, but I do believe that when there's opportunity somebody's going to fill it you know so somebody's going to come up with a solution for that boutique hotel space on the lending side Um, so how do people um, you know if they want to get to know you better Reach out to you, get to know you better. What's the what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, you can check out my my podcast, The Rich Summers Report. We have a studio out here in San Diego. Uh, we've had people like Grant Cardone on. We're work Tariq Al Musa. Uh, we're working on, working on getting Drew Brees on here in a couple of weeks. Uh, you can check that out. We're on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, The Rich Summers Report, and then uh, you can also find me on Instagram at Rich underscore Summers. That's S O M E R S, and you can find all my other links uh, there. Fantastic. So another question. Hey, how do you get on that yacht meetup? Because that, that sounds like a lot of fun. If I was out there, I would, I would want to be part of that. Yeah. Um, we do it monthly from May to September. We're actually hosting our last one uh, this coming weekend, September 17th. But uh, you just go to my Instagram. There's links right there and you can find all that stuff. If you're ever out in San Diego, Darren, we'd love to have you at a meetup and I'd love to have you on the podcast that'd, too. That'd be great. That'd be great. So listeners... If you're out in San Diego, look this guy up, my friends. Um, he's, he's, he's got it going on. So, Rich, appreciate you coming on. Listeners, I hope that you enjoyed that one. Until next week, signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at DarrenBatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend.